Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. We move fast and fix things here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode Cloud Servers. Head to Linode.com slash Changelog. This episode is brought to you by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean is the simplest cloud platform for developers and teams with products like Droplets, Spaces, Kubernetes, Load Balancers, Block Storage, and pre-built one-click apps. You can deploy, manage, and scale cloud applications faster and more efficiently on DigitalOcean. Whether you're running one virtual machine or 10,000, DigitalOcean makes managing your infrastructure way too easy. Get started for free with a $100 credit. Head to do.co slash changelog. Again, do.co slash changelog. All right, welcome back, everyone. This is the Changelog, a podcast featuring the hackers, the leaders, and the innovators of software development. I'm Adam Stachowiak, Editor-in-Chief here at Changelog. Mike McQuaid is back talking about Homebrew 2, supporting Linux and Windows 10, the backstory and details surrounding the security issue they faced last year in 2018, their new governance model, Mike's new role, the core team meeting in person at FOSDEM this year, and what's coming next for Homebrew. Like we're back again, man, and uh, it's been a while, right? Yeah, yeah, it's been a few years, right? Time flies. You got Homebrew 2 out, you got some new governance stuff happening. Uh, we actually almost caught up with you, I think, July of last year around the security thing. So there's lots to cover, but where do you think we should begin? Should we begin with the security thing or should we begin with the latest updates to Homebrew? Yeah, let's start on the downer and then finish with the the upper gotcha (laughs) let's go there then so we actually wanted to kind of news hack it but just didn't work out to get both you and the security researcher on the show but you're here instead so tell us what happened yeah so basically we got a security disclosure through our hacker one it's actually been a really nice setup since we kind of moved to that previously we had just you know oh we'll create an issue or send us an email or whatever and people suggest that we kind of get set up on hacker one and it's kind of a responsible disclosure platform thing and it's free for open source and that's kind of worked pretty well for us so uh yeah basically late july last year um uh, a researcher identified that jenkins um which is what we've used for homebrew ci and building our binary packages had been leaking a token. Unfortunately, that token actually gave him push access to some repos. Um, so that was obviously relatively terrifying. Uh, we managed to, obviously, the bonuses of good disclosure is that we, you know, within a few hours, we were able to revoke the creds. We were able to replace them and sanitize anything in Jenkins. So it, this shouldn't happen in future. Um, and also basically check to see with the old credentials, like what was possible and what wasn't. And thankfully, like it actually wasn't as bad as initially feared because although it has to have kind of write access, that particular credential, it didn't have actual like push access to the given repos. And we were also able to verify with GitHub's supports help and some auditing ourselves that it hadn't been used by anyone uh, during the period in which the scopes were elevated and which it had write access. Um, so basically one of those ones were, you know, scary times, but thankfully kind of all resolved. So we kind of wrote it all up on our blog, uh, tried to let people know what happened, what the implications were and like what we were going to do moving forward and um, try to move on since then and haven't had any other big slip up similarly since then, which has been good. The fellow's name was Eric Holmes, right? That's the one. Yeah. That's the one. We uh, we linked this up around the time of happening to change all news. And the last question I think is kind of interesting. And I'm kind of curious what you think about this. He says, if I can gain access to commit in 30 minutes, 
What could a nation state with dedicated resources achieve against a team of 17 volunteers? Yeah. I mean, it's a great question, to be honest. And, you know, I don't mean to scare people with this stuff, but I, I mean, I'm very much of the belief that unless you are a very high level security professional who has deep knowledge in this stuff, if you're going against a nation state, like it's, it's more or less, you know, as they say, game over, man. Mm -hmm. I'm, yeah, it's that side of things is, is scary. Yeah. But, I think the thing with homebrew, at least, is that it has been designed such that, um, and we kind of said this even at the time when we were kind of debating it as maintainers, is that with stuff like this, you can there is vulnerabilities which can be introduced silently, and then you'd never really notice them and never really catch them. And then there's vulnerabilities that you would notice. And because we have everything built on top of Git, and because our CDN is immutable after 30 days, and because we have like, I guess, a two-level kind of hashing uh, structure, even with our binary packages, where we maintain the hashes for those packages and the packages are maintained elsewhere on separate infrastructure. That It means that the chances of someone, like a nation-state, mm -hmm. being able to compromise Homebrew, I'm not basically a, you know, if you have a one of the relatively big superpowers trying to do something like that, the chance that they could compromise Homebrew I feel it would be relatively high if they put their mind to it, but the chance yeah. that they could do so without any maintainers or the community noticing, that's something I'm not convinced about. Mm. Um, I, I feel like we would notice and we would be able to kind of spot that that had happened and disclose that information and stuff like that. Because I guess the other flip side of the open source community with stuff like this is because we don't have you know a relationship as volunteers with the government of countries that may want to do things like this, we would not have any... <laughs> qualms in going posting on our blog and pointing fingers at directly whom we believe has done something and when they did it and why we think they did it and all that type of thing and mm -hmm. i guess companies sometimes have a little bit more conflict there because obviously there's commercial interests involved and blah 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 right. it's an interesting thought experiment and you just kind of wonder you know with open source software it's it's the gift and the curse right on, on the gift side well, there's a lot more eyes on it. There, it, The code is there. You know, we use modern SEMs. And so, like you said, any sort of things going into the software coming out, um, they're all in version control. They're all publicly there. There's lots of, I mean, there's 17 maintainers and there's your gift, but the, the curse is that it's all open source, right? And so there's, as, yep. a, as a bad actor, there's a whole lot less poking at a black box that you have to do because you aren't dealing with a f the final product. You're dealing with the source code, you know, depending on, what the project is and so it's just one yep. of these things where yeah i mean he he got it done in 30 minutes that was really the the thing that i, I think made this particular incident just in more interesting than other ones is because it was like wow he set out to do it and 30 minutes later he had it and yep. uh, that's not much effort right um yeah and i think the interesting thing from our perspective is that I, I, others may well draw different conclusions but our perspective would probably be that it was uh, an example of our weakness being exploited which is that i guess like other open source projects most of us would rather be writing code than doing system administration so right. as a result like our we have like a jenkins instance and i mean shout out to anyone working on jenkins here they've been you know it's great software that we've used for a very long time but compared to what we're increasingly used to with you know say travis ci and azure pipelines which is what we use now and you know a lot of these cloud tools where effectively keeping everything up to date and keeping the configuration sane is not something you need to worry about yourself. Whereas any of these sort of open source projects where you're installing the software yourself, you're maintaining it on that system, you know, getting the balance right between applying all the security updates in Jenkins and then 
all the plugins, which then change behavior between versions. So this was one of these annoying cases where uh, it was an intersection between plugins, where one plugin, which had previously you know, filtered out the tokens, was updated, and then that responsibility was delegated to another plugin, which hadn't been configured to do it correctly, and all this type of thing. And it's kind of tricky because it slips through the cracks. And, and our yeah. longer-term solution that we're kind of working towards now is basically just get rid of any infrastructure we have to maintain ourselves. I mean, mm-hmm. in, in an ideal world, we would all be on you know, Travis and EC2 and Azure pipelines, and that would be the end of the day. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, again, the, the complexity of our project is that we have to build binary packages on macOS, and there is not a freely available macOS hosting platform for building stuff at the scale that we need yet. Yeah. We're, we're getting optimistic that there will be in future. We've had some really good conversations with Microsoft um, about Azure pipelines, but Right now, as of today, you know, we still need to maintain our own infrastructure, which is, in this case, you know, the configuration of that infrastructure is the weak point. So, yeah. so that's my number one goal on my list of stuff to do this year, is to get us entirely onto other people's infrastructure for this stuff. Mm. But again, I guess like, <laughs> it's one of those ones where I'm, I will do it by the end of the year, I'm, I'm fairly confident, but I, don't, I can't really be bothered. And <laughs> one of those tricky ones in Homebrew <laughs> where if, if I don't do it, chances are pretty low that anyone else is going to step off and yeah. do this work. But, you know. In a more general sense, it's taking yep. Homebrew specifically off the table and just thinking about open source security. Yep. The, the trouble is, and you know, we say it a lot on the show, and by no means, you know, a lot of people say that it's true, but it's like from the, from the security standpoint, you, know, you have to bet a thousand pretty much, right? You have to get, like, let me say it this way. There's only, you only have to mess up one thing mm-hmm. in order to have a threat vector. Yep. And then that thing has to just be found, right? Like it's easier to find one hole in, in, in an armor than it is to like make an armor that's completely indestructible, has no holes. Exactly. And for open source, like you said, we'd rather be writing code than doing infrastructure. It's also can be like not your area of expertise, you know, and maybe uh, you're good at this thing, which made homebrew successful. Maybe you're not so good at that thing. Maybe somebody else has more experience, but even with the experience, people mistakes are made. So, for example, uh, we've been cutting over some of our infrastructure here at Changelog.com, and all of our source code is open source. And um, we're on Concourse CI, and we're switching over Circle CI. I won't tell all the details of of that experience, but I'll just tell you that we've rotated all of our keys right lately because mistakes, you know, are made. Yep, and it's just kind of the unfortunate state of the world. But the question becomes, like on the large, you know, how do we how do we engage in a a battle as a community against bad actors, whether it's nation states or security researchers? You know, what do we do that's sustainable? I know we've been working on lots of tooling, you know, building and auditing into our package managers, for instance, that kind of thing. But do you put any thought into this beyond Homebrew's uh, yard of like? Yeah, I mean, I I think so. I think there's been a few things through Homebrew that I've kind of learned. That I think are more widely applicable. I guess the first one is back to this, you know, the security disclosure on our blog um, and on Hacker One and kind of working with the researcher to kind of have him publish his results. I mean, of course, you know, the, the, one of the first things you try and learn when you're getting more senior as an engineer is, you know, you are not your code. And if your code has problems, that doesn't mean you, your worth as an individual goes down. But, you know, but the first thing when you get a, a vulnerability like this is you want to, you want it to not be true and you want, you know, Despite everything that you know and believe about responsible disclosure, you just want to hide the problem and have it <laughs> yeah, exactly. go away. You know, mm-hmm. it's like an ego thing. And it's 
And, and, and again, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with people admitting that that's, you know, it's a pretty natural reaction for you to have, you know, you, if you met. Yeah, shameful. You don't want that to be the case. Yeah, right. Exactly. But but I think, again, like that's one of the big things I think the, the open source community in general is good at um, is stepping up yeah. and being responsible and disclosing this stuff. Like, because in this case, you know, the, the level of this vulnerability here, like, I'm sure that happened to a hundred country, a hundred companies around the world this year. Like almost an identical problem. And are they right. going to write on their company blog that they disclose this? Well, some some companies will, and you know, hat tip to them. But most won't, and that's that's a problem. Yeah. Uh, I guess the other thing is that kind of somewhat ties onto what you were saying earlier is that you know you need to just accept with some of this stuff that you're not going to have the time and the resources for the open source projects that you would like to. Um, you know, I, I, again, if, if Homebrew was a commercial company, you know, I wouldn't hire me to do half the stuff that I'm doing um, <laughs> because I'm not qualified. Um, and right. I, and I know there's better people to do that. And, and even on the coding end, you know, like if, you know, if me at work was to review my code quality that I, you know, have on Homebrew, then I would probably be, you know, leaving lots of requested changes all over the place because at the end of the day, I, I don't have the time and the resources to do things to as high a standard in open source always as I do when, you know, when, when we gang issues that are affecting, you know, whatever, like millions of people, potentially the onus is on fixing it right now. Uh, and when you don't have lots of very smart coworkers around you who can help bounce ideas off and it's just down to you, then it's like, well, you're not going to do it as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess the final thing I thought, which again was a side effect in this case, but um, is Sometimes you can avoid some security issues by just not having all your eggs in one basket. Like it's, uh, for example, if, if GitHub, we, we have our binary packages hosted on Bintray, um, and we also download source packages from the original like sources that they, you know, whatever the, the hosting company is for the original software. Uh. Um, and it would have been and was tempting in the earlier days to say, right, let's just double down on GitHub use all of their hosting options and everything like that. And if we'd done that in this case, then that's when you lose one token and all of a sudden they have the keys yeah. to everything in your castle. Whereas in this case, you know, they, you know, even if you got into Jenkins, you wouldn't have access to published binary packages. You wouldn't have access right. to push to various repos. Like, you know, things are separated between individuals. And then there's actually even between individuals within the project, you know, you would have to compromise a handful of specific maintainers to be able to get access to everything because most maintainers are not granted access that they don't need. I guess that would be a security thing that we've done for a while, which I I guess I would encourage other open source projects to do is that it's tough, but when someone doesn't need, you know, if you've got someone in your project who maybe was a big figurehead in the early days or whatever, and they haven't worked on the project for several years, they should not have access to push to your repositories in my opinion yeah um yeah. and it, it it really stings again both sides to go and have to have that conversation about like maybe you don't need the access here but again i feel like that's the kind of responsibility side of things where if you if you're not willing to revoke people's tokens then you're increasing the number of laptops that need to be increasing or decreasing one or the other basically yeah you you have a bunch of laptops in the wild right if someone steals that and it's not encrypted then you are giving people access to push to those repos and again, it depends on your release model and your verification model and things like that, like how big a deal that would be. But certainly for some projects, that would be a big deal. Yeah. Well, the good thing about this security incident, though, is it was best case scenario, right? It was a security researcher. Yep. Why had a hacker? Yeah, exactly. You know, and you were able to, even though it was shameful, you were able to disclose it quite well because 
you know, in the end, no packages were compromised and no actions actually required by the incident. So it was a, it was a researcher and not a bad actor. Yep, exactly. That's at least one, whew, you know, wipe the brow because yeah. it could have been bad. I think that's a nice thing with the open source community in general as well, is that we, you know, if you go out your way to do things properly on the security side, then you generally, you know, even the kind of gray hats in the middle are not going to get a lot of kudos from going and really making idiots of an open source project who are trying their right. best to do the right thing with this stuff. You know, whereas all of a sudden they've, th- this is a case where again, get the ego involved and all of a sudden if we kind of try and make out to the security researcher that, you know, he made a mistake and we changed things from underneath him and, you know, and he writes a blog post and we get into a he said, he said, she said type thing on Twitter about, you know, calling each other names, then all of a sudden that's when you can see potentially in future security researchers being like, well, you know, these folks at Homebrew think they're so great, we're going to take them down a peg or two. So I think, you know, there's a certain amount of humility that needs to be involved there when you're dealing with people who know a lot more about a subject area, in this case, you know, security, than you do, you know, and mm-hmm. being kind of grateful that those people are willing to kind of go the right way and, and help you out there rather than try and, you know, make fools of you. Mm. Did you end up having like a personal conversation with this person or did you end up just like, black and white email texting like what was the what was the kind of crossover there yeah no it was, it was just through so we just chatted with them through um hacker one through the uh through our kind of security disclosure tool um and that's kind of the main way we had the conversation there and i think it maybe went to kind of our personal emails kind of chatting there as well because we wanted to kind of coordinate the blog posts and, and all that type of thing mm. so uh the other fun <laughs> I guess aside with open source as well is that like this this all happened during uh, my um, paternity leave. GitHub is very generous in that you get five months paid paternity leave. Um, wow! So I was off, and my wife had gone back to work, and I was with my off with my first, and uh, I was his kind of sole care provider at that time for a three month period. And yeah, and this happened more or less slap bang in the middle of it. So like I put him down for a nap and was like frantically trying to sort of write this stuff up and. <laughs> You know, sort those things out and being like, please, please, we man, just stay asleep. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. But yeah, so, I, and I guess that's again. Congrats, by the way. That's terrible, though. Yeah, thank you very much. To deal with. Yeah, yeah. Congrats, that's yeah, terrible. I- Congrats, <laughs> you know, on the kid, of course. <laughs> and uh, that's terrible to have to deal with that during paternity leave, you know. Well, the question oh, is, yeah. did he stay asleep the whole time? <laughs> yeah, I mean, he, yeah, he, he, he's a good sleeper. We've been there very lucky go. on that front. But yeah, but like... um. Yeah, it's it's kind of again, it's it's nice because the security researcher. I feel like with the kind of delays around the blog post and stuff like that, um, you know, we didn't publish the blog post quite as quickly as we would have liked to because of stuff like this. Uh, and I, I feel like he was fairly understanding when I was like, "Yo, I'm on paternity leave. Please, like, yeah. <laughs> give me a chance to to write this up and stuff." Um, but yeah, but again, that's the the flip side of open source projects. You know, is that people who are involved with you know be this is the 10th calendar year I've been involved with Homebrew, you know, and people go from being, you know, young singletons living by themselves with plenty of free time to, you know, Mm -hmm. balancing kind of family life and multiple children and all that type of stuff. And, you know, it's good because, you know, you get new people on board who are younger and and more energetic and have more free time than you do. But at the same time, it's the, the flip side of, well, that's why you don't maybe have the time to do everything as well as you could. And that's why, in my opinion as well, like I'm, even more increasingly now, like pushing on, no, we can't kind of have more systems and more apps that we're going to have to maintain. We want to be able to use other people's infrastructure. So we're not worrying about having to manually run anything, you know, to keep, keep the lights on in, in Homebrew's case. Mm. 
this hacker one site is cool and i think it's a it's a it's a necessary thing to really bring together two disparate communities i mean when you talk about security researchers and open source developers in my experience and you guys can tell me yours there doesn't seem to be too much overlap there's a few people who kind of play in both pools but it seems like there's a somewhat strict divide there in those two communities and really to all of our disbenefit that's not even a word but you know to our harm i guess there's to say because there's a lot that we have to offer in terms of open source developers to security researchers and vice versa and so anywhere that we can create uh places that we can come together and collaborate and they can you know hack on our code and we can <laughs> fix things as as they find problems uh those are things that are necessary just thinking about some of the stuff you're saying what happens at github there's a lot of best practices you know you're, you're mentioning principle of least power and defense in depth there's a lot of things that we can do as developers that really mitigates the problem you know similar to like if well if i get hacked at least they don't have root access like there's no you know god mode immediately so we can do things that help mitigate when there are breaches but if we don't have those things taught to us or explained to us or reiterated or example to us you know, we just don't know what to do, how to do it well. And so it's cool that they offer this free for open source. It made me think of, you know, proprietary companies and the advantage that they have is that they can actually offer cash for bugs, you know, or cash for vulnerabilities. Yep. And as open source people, it's like, well, we're, you know, we can't even get any cash to, uh, to buy a sandwich, let alone to <laughs> fund some security audits. Yeah, no, I mean, that's very true. I completely agree. Uh, and the other tricky thing, which, you know, doesn't, come across on the public side is you know the the signal to noise ratio on this stuff is you know it makes github issues look bad in some ways because you, you get so many people who are going and more or less presumably copying and pasting the same report onto 20 projects just you uh -huh. know you find you you find a project that uses jenkins and then you you know copy and do the same sort of inverted commas exploit or whatever about something that's mm -hmm. not actually an issue and you know there's various people saying that they've like, you know, owned our GitHub pages site and stuff like that. And it's like, well, it's a static site. So I'm not convinced that you have actually, because there's nothing dynamic on that page whatsoever. <laughs> so unless, you know, you've somehow got access to GitHub servers, in which case they will probably pay you for that bounty. So yeah, so it's, it's tricky kind of wading through all that stuff. It's a lot of noise. Yeah. Yeah. Just for the times where, you know, someone discloses something and you're like, oh, this is actually, you know, a legitimate problem. And we should deal with this now. Mm. But yeah, but again, that's, that's a hard problem to solve. Yeah, it is. It's I, I, to be fair, like hacker one seems to have a good sort of reputational system under underlying it. So you definitely don't see the same kind of bad reports more than one. And you, you can actually, I guess, to your your dark side showing if, if, you, if you get a really kind of crappy report from someone, then you can kind of flag it as basically being sufficiently negative that they take kind of a, a reputational hit in the system and stuff like that but mm. you know you, st mm. you still feel like you're kind of i guess doing moderation slash being a recapture type situation <laughs> so what's the advice then for maintainers out there that might find themselves in a similar situation should they go to hacker one and get an account what's the you know, what's your recommendation here? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I, I think I would still recommend going to HackerOne and getting an account because it just, it's a workflow that I think makes more sense to security professionals, really. I guess it's in the same respect as like people might say, where should I create my open source project now? And I would say GitHub. And they might say, oh, well, I hear you get a lot of issues or drive-bys or whatever. And it's like, yeah, that, that's, that's the case. But at the same time, it's still the place where it's happening and the place that makes the most sense. And as far as I can tell, like HackerOne is the same 
same sort of deal where it's, it's yeah. you know it's not all rosy but it's it's definitely better than anything else i've found out there and it's it seems to be in our case at least it seems to have really encouraged really responsible disclosure from people who know what they're doing who as you said wouldn't perhaps otherwise get involved so i feel like that's a, a sunny upland for us i just want to highlight this note on your hacker one page we'll link it in the show notes hackerone.com slash homebrew in the exclusion section this just made me chuckle uh while researching we ask that you refrain from and one of them is social engineering including phishing of homebrew maintainers or contributors <laughs> it's just hilarious that you have to actually say that yeah so i well i think that was actually one of their templates is they have like a template of oh, okay of suggested exclusions um gotcha. but yeah but no like uh, or I copied and pasted that from other servers or whatever. But yeah, like I guess it's 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 the same thing. And I, I guess that's that's definitely one where I, I feel like open source projects kind of maybe do warrant a little bit more sympathy. Like you know, if you if you get in this situation where you're calling up open source maintainers at home for a social engineering attack, like yeah, it's like come on, just no break. Let them have their mm-hmm. evenings. Hack our code. Don't hack us. Yeah, or at least, at least socially engineer them during work time. <laughs> This episode is brought to you by Git Prime. They just released a 52-page beautiful field guide called 20 Patterns. This field guide is a collection of work patterns Git Prime has observed while working with hundreds of software teams. And their hope is that you'll use this field guide to get a better feel for how your team works, to recognize achievement, to spot bottlenecks, and also to debug your development processes with data. You'll learn about long-running PRs, flaky product ownership, scope creep, knowledge silos, and so much more. Check the show notes for a link to download this field guide or learn more at gitprime.com slash changelog. That's G-I-T-P-R-I-M-E dot com slash changelog. So Mike, the big homebrew 2.0 started this month, shot up the Shot up the charts of Changelog News to number one quickly. Everybody was super excited. Of course, the huge announcement is the official support for Linux and Windows 10. A little bit of an asterisk by the Windows support. We'll talk about that. But tell us about Homebrew 2 and the big release. How was it received? Yeah, so it's been really exciting. It seems to be it's been received really well. People have been really positive about it. And it's a nice kind of like buzz in the community uh, yeah. since doing so as well. Um, it's been... A kind of funny thing it's been you know the difference the distance between 1.0 and 2.0 has been i think it was two and a half years or something and then like 1.0 and original homebrew was about you know seven years so it's definitely a, a slightly faster iteration but it feels like it's a kind of good balance between there was some kind of deprecations and big changes we wanted to make that we've been kind of holding off on for a while but then also some kind of big kind of features in there at the same time which like you mentioned, the kind of Linux stuff being mm-hmm. a notable example. Um, so yeah, so that's been quite cool. So there's been a another project that's been running for quite a while now uh, called that was called Linux Brew that was basically just a full-on fork of, of Homebrew um, mm-hmm. to run on Linux. Um, and we have, like, the Homebrew project is sort of, you know, we've, we've kind of had a little bit of back and forth and been kind of collaborating with those folks a little bit for a while, but maintaining our own independent forks. And it's maybe about a year ago we sort of started thinking like, well, maybe we can actually bring these projects together because the code's getting uh, more similar and things like that. And I, I'd kind of started working, 
few years ago about trying to almost do a, a kind of proper cross-platform port based on I guess cross-platform work I've kind of done previously in my career and things like that to try and build nice abstraction layers so you don't just end up with like if OS Linux, if OS Mac, like all of your code. And um, so yeah, so basically we we did that and we kind of got all the Linux code back into Homebrew, kind of done in a nice kind of properly abstracted fashion. And we'd actually been using uh, running Homebrew on Linux for some of our CI stuff, you know, stuff like uploading packages and generating our kind of package browser data and stuff like that for. A, a little while now so um yeah it kind of segued in nicely and it was fairly smooth and it's been a nice kind of transition and selling point for homebrew i think yeah so if you were on a recent version of homebrew would it auto upgrade you to 2.0 because i saw the news and i'm like ooh, i want to go get it and then i did a i don't know what i did brew dash v or i already had it was the long story yeah. short yeah so that's the sad thing that people end up with is that homebrew <laughs> Our, our, so our version numbers in some ways are just like notifying people of what has changed underneath you while you haven't been paying attention. Because um, <laughs> so, it's already there. Yeah, exactly. So we, when you run, uh, like there's the brew update command, which will put you on the newer version anyway. But as of, well, since 1.0 actually, we've been running that automatically when you run various commands like brew install, brew upgrade, and things yeah. like that. So you just get put on the newest version. Mm. So uh, if... I guess like the the slight downside to that is when people see you know like oh I I don't like the look of some of this stuff on two point I'll stick on one point nine it's like well sorry you can't sorry <laughs> you're already on two point there's no going back um so yeah there's I mean no consumer choice here it's, it's we know what's best for you exactly and that's not the case <laughs> for me at all I'm actually I don't know if this says something about me or not but I'm on homebrew one point eight point six oh really oh this says a lot about you well or yeah you me. might have disabled the auto updater at some point uh, that that's a, a thing you can do is that in the config then to to do that yeah so you set an environment variable uh, and it's documented in the man page and then it, yeah and then you have to run brute updates manually so yeah I mean that's I guess that sort of segues nicely that a lot of the things that um, some of the changes we've made now and a lot of the kind of things that we've changed in the last few years have been things which you could do before, but are, we're always just a bit clunky. Um, so another big thing we kind of made in 2.0, which people have been kind of asking slash complaining slash begging for years is we run kind of brew cleanup automatically. Uh, so that was basically a command that goes and like cleans out like old versions that you're not using right. anymore and kind of your cache and stuff like that. And you know, every like literally, it felt like every week we would have someone post on Twitter and be like, "Oh yeah, I discovered this new command," and I like you know, it freed up like 25 gig of space on my disk. And like every time I read that, I kind of winced a bit because I feel like you know, there's not a lot of software, or or at least a lot of software that I think is great where you need to discover some hidden little setting to make it mm -hmm. not slowly eat up your entire disk so yeah so we, we've kind of changed that now and i guess like the up the update stuff you know by default now we just do that for you automatically we run it every 30 days we do like a full cleanup and then we do like the the package that you've installed at install time but again you can turn that off as well um so whenever we kind of change stuff like that we do try and make it so it, it's still possible to kind of sit and maintain the kind of previous workflow you had but i'm a big believer in i guess being on an an Apple um, Apple platform in general. I'm a big believer that the the defaults should be really good. Like you should focus the defaults on the most sensible behavior for the majority. And if that means occasionally kind of having to break or um, alter backwards compatibility, then that's worth it for the ma silent majority of people who do not want to have to read the documentation to have the tool yeah. work the way they expect it should work. Um, 
And as I say, yeah, provide opt-out so the people who kind of would rather it's stuck around the old way, they can go and read the man page, settle setting, read the release notes, whatever, and then they get that. Um, but yeah, but people don't always necessarily see it that way. <laughs> I think that's definitely the sensible way of doing it. And I appreciate the opt-out because as somebody who enjoys running brew cleanup every once in a while and just clearing up space, you know, it feels like you just cleaned your room or something. Um, you know, having it not have such an impact might, you know, hurt my psyche. So I might go, I might go and turn that off so I can run it myself. But uh, I, I'm starting to have flashbacks of our previous conversation. So I think we actually talked about brew update running automatically on our last call with you a couple of years back. And maybe I feel like maybe Adam, we should go back and listen to that because you might have actually turned it off while we were talking about it um, on that call. Because I think you remember talking about being able to opt out of that back then. I was Googling while we we're talking here too. I'm going to read something that Mike had actually said in, it looks like October 2016, it's documented in the man page. And instead of opting out, he recommends, Mike, you might remember saying this, you recommend setting the time period between checks to a higher value instead of opting out. Uh-huh. Yep. So I do that myself. So by default, if you don't run, if you basically run brew install, it'll run brew update every uh, 60 seconds, uh, effectively. If well, And that doesn't mean it will, you know, do updates, it means that it will check and see if there's any updates on GitHub. Um, and obviously some people find that that can slow things down or whatever. But again, we have, we want to have the default for the people who don't read the docs and don't want to tweak things really, really low because that brew update change, for example, back in 1.0, like dramatically reduced the number of support requests we would get oh, yeah. where, the res- where the response is, we fixed that 10 minutes ago, run brew update. Um, so now we don't get those issues anymore, basically. And the people who want to disable it can still disable it. But yeah, but I personally have that set to, oh, I can't remember what it is. It's like, you know, a few hours or something like that. So it, it's not running all the time and mm. it just runs kind of periodically, but that's kind of enough for me. And then I still, if I'm doing development, sometimes I will just, you know, set the environment variable temporarily in a shell and then it, I can go and know that it's never going to run. Well, let me just heap a little praise on you and the homebrew community because as we talk about this, I'm just now thinking about it in time spans. And I have been a happy homebrew user for years now. I don't even know how many years. And I will just say that it's the it's it's one of the only tools that I rarely think about in terms of I don't know effort. It's just like I use it. It works. I enjoy running brew cleanup. Um, it updates itself. It's been like a rock in my life. Like I just haven't had any like I don't know. Homebrew is acting up again. Like I can't even think of a time. I have some issues once in a while with like upgrading Postgres specifically, but that's a Postgres thing and not really a homebrew thing. And in fact, whoever is working on that formula has improved it lately so that they help you. You know, they hold your hand through the data migration more than they used to, which I appreciate because I don't do those migrations often enough to have those things memorized. But aside from that, which I, again is a Postgres thing, it's pretty much just works. Is that your experience, yeah. Adam? I, mean, I feel like yeah. I feel like a lot of people have that experience, and it it's nice having some software that just works because a lot of software just doesn't work that well. I want to echo what you're saying too because I feel the same way. I mean, so much so that whenever I start a new machine, I'm using a version, my own forked version of Thoughtbot's laptop project on GitHub, and just because I have different needs than they do. But I mean, it's basically just brew installs. You know, some versions of homebrew being involved and yeah. if it weren't for that then it'd be a lot of manual bash especially scripting. with cask right yeah you do all your installs all your apps install through cask now yeah there's a couple of apps that i for sure install every single machine so i just do that between the uh, 
the Mac Apple Store. I think it's Mass, I believe, is the command. Um, Mac App Store, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, between Homebrew itself, Cask, and Mass, it, it's pretty seamless to just start a new machine up. And, and literally, like, I just run a command, and minutes later, the machine's ready. Yeah. Well, I, I may make your life even better now, because I'm going to do a shout-out to another project that I, I created, which was uh, it's a little project called Strap. Uh, that replaced the boxing project at GitHub. Um, so basically, ah. it's the same sort of thing you were talking about there for setting up your machine. Mm. Um, so it's it's really kind of minimal, I guess, like the kind of laptop script. It's like basically just a small bash script, but it will generate your um, your GitHub tokens for you and stuff as well. But the cool thing about Strap, I guess, in comparison to the the laptop script or kind of box and stuff like that, is that it doesn't actually install really any software for you. It just installs stuff that you can use to install other software so it installs like um homebrew for you and the xcode command line tools and kind of enables like nice um, full disk encryption but then i was thinking about it and i was like okay well i want to have some level of user customization and what's a what's a like a, a cool way of doing that so like the next step beyond that is because it sets up your github tokens and you kind of get it going through github um it goes and looks for if you have a repo called say github.com slash mike mcquade slash dot files then it will clone that automatically for you and then if you have a script slash setup file in that repo it will run that automatically for you and then if you have a have you if you guys come across homebrew bundle no. as well that's the other thing that kind of ties into this ecosystem so yeah. so that's the other effectively half of this system so it will then if you have a brew file in your dot files repository or a homebrew brew file repository then it will run homebrew bundle on your brew file as well and what does homebrew bundle do so that you can use that independently of strap this is a separate project that's kind of part of the kind of homebrew ecosystem and what that lets you do it's basically a ripoff of a gem file and kind of bundler which was originally created by andrew nesbitt this thing uh homebrew bundle it was called broodler originally um but basically what it lets you do is specify a gem file like syntax kind of ruby uh but without the versions, basically, because we can't kind of pin everything to versions. Mm. And you can have it automatically install all your Homebrew taps, which is kind of third-party repositories, all your Homebrew packages. It can set start services for you uh, if you want them to as well. It can also install all your Homebrew casks, so things like Google Chrome, Java, Firefox, etc. And it can also install everything from the Mac App Store for you, so say you're kind of one password and things like that. So for me, when I... I have this kind of set up in my dot files repo on GitHub, so I can just run a single like strap script and it will go and do all this stuff for me automatically mm. on my on my laptop when I run a single script basically um and the nice thing is that stuff is all I'm able to kind of share the files I use and it's all kind of open source as well so people can s- see like what my what my setup is and my brew file and things like that and because I'm incredibly sorry in fact this is this is a good kind of <laughs> geek cred extension to that right so I was kind of looking forward to running this again because uh, I had some issues with my MacBook Pro uh, and Apple were replacing the keyboard. So they gave me a learner laptop and they said, when you get your laptop back, it's going to be wiped. And then they gave it back to me and it wasn't wiped. And I was actually like so disappointed that I wasn't going to do this again. That I, I voluntarily wiped my work laptop just to kind of go through the whole, I was like, right, I'll do my, you know, like back in the days of Windows where you had to. Oh yeah, know, wipe it machine every few fresh. years. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. I was like, yeah, I'm just gonna have a, a fresh install and, and have a clean run because uh, I'd gone and like tweaked all my um, all my scripts to be even more kind of smooth and polished and 
So I made I made a little script as well that like pulls all my so it'll pull like my SSH keys out of one password and stuff, and then like dump them in the right wow. place on disk and stuff like that. So I need to enter my one password like once, and then it pulls out all my SSH keys and my GPG keys and my kind of bin tray and GitHub tokens and things like that. Um, and it's cool because again the script is all open source, but it's all pulling like private encrypted credentials. Yeah, it doesn't matter if you have access to everything in the script. So yeah, so that's my. My, cool. my happy place is just automating <laughs> things completely unnecessarily. I definitely spent more time on the script. Well, I was going to just say that because, I, first of all, this is super cool. And I'm total geek cred on this. But the reason why I've never used these, even because uh, Adam's talked about ThoughtBots, what's it called, Bootstrap or Laptop? Laptop. laptop. Yeah, Laptop. And uh, I looked at Boxin. I just feel like... It's kind of a Yagni thing where it's like you're basically putting a lot of work into automating something that you do like maybe <laughs> once every few years. Maybe yep. I haven't. Tell you what, though, I thought the same thing though. Until uh, you know, you have a, a few machines, or you get a new machine, you know, not long after you prepare to do this again. So when you go on the you go on the annual update scheme with their- no, I mean, I think. I've probably had three laptops in the last six years. I don't know. Maybe it's maybe it's less than that. I feel like it's. Not that much, not that often of a new machine, but I've gone from laptop yeah. to desktop though because I have slightly different needs than you do. So, you know, where I have to do more audio stuff and video stuff, so I tend to need a more higher power machine. So, having this iMac and then also laptop makes me need to set up more often than I would say. You know, twice as much. You know, twice as much as you do. Yeah, twice as much. Yeah. That's true. So, Mike, tell us why. I'm looking at Strap, and we'll definitely link this up. We'll probably log this on Change Log yeah. News now that we found Already it. Already doing. Just kidding. Why is there a de- you're logging it right now? <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm just kidding. Why is there a deploy to Heroku button for a command line script? Yeah, I haven't. I'm just perusing the readme. So clue me in yeah. here. Can you just run this Good from a question. website kind of thing? Yeah. So basically, the the Heroku thing works for. Remember, I said earlier that it will um, set up your GitHub tokens for you. So that's basically so it can do that. So the okay. script. It's just a script. But this is something I stole from Boxing, which is the um, when you download that Bootstrap script, it gets you to log into GitHub, so it can then generate tokens, so it can set up all your GitHub access for you. Gotcha. So basically, when you run that script, that gives the script the ability to talk to GitHub, and it also means that you don't need to do the whole initial like lo- basically you log into GitHub once through your browser, and then mm-hmm. it sets up all your kind of after that you can do a Git clone of a private repo, and it will kind of work as long as the mm. strap application kind of has access so that's i guess to, to answer the question of like why you i mean i i love i i'm one of those people who i i, I love spending an hour writing a script to yeah do <laughs> make a five minute task less boring um, right but like the flip side well this was it was actually i ended up kind of maintaining some of the internal software they use at github to go and um like set up new developers machines Right. And this was Which basically makes way more sense. Yeah. Yeah. So this was the motivation for this. And since we've moved to this kind of new system, it seems to be um saving a lot of people time. And again, the homebrew bundle thing, it's actually got a few different use cases. So one is the I want to set up all the software on my machine, but then there's also the the kind of classic one that always bugged me was uh in the readme of a project that says, Okay, so before you try and set up the server, you need to brew install X, Y, and Z. And I always thought that that was kind of I kind of my attitude is like put stuff into code if you can rather than documentation. So instead of that, now the little bootstrap script, instead of saying run brew install whatever, you can run brew bundle in that repository once you've checked it out, and then it will know to set up 
say, MySQL, Elasticsearch, start those services right. um, if they're not already running. And if they are running, then it kind of verifies that they are, that they are and stuff like that. So I, I guess I see it as well as being like a project bootstrap tool as well for dependencies that are on mm-hmm. the Mac App Store or in Homebrew Cask or in, um, in Homebrew itself. Yeah, we could, def- we could definitely use that. The, the laptop project uses the bundle command as well. It, it uses Does brew it? bundle dash dash file. And this is all in a, in a bash script. Oh, yeah, yeah. And then it yeah. embeds it in it. Yep. So it's, it's still using that same kind of concept that you're talking about, Mike. And that's the thing that makes me happy about this, because, again, that's when I worked on, uh, when I was working on Boxing, Boxing was very much kind of more of a kind of monolithic system. And the thing that makes me happy with the way that we kind of built this solution that replaced this at GitHub is, you know, it is kind of, in my opinion, the more Unixy. Uh, way of doing things in that you build a bunch of tools which all interoperate nicely and you create a system from combining those tools but it means if anyone says like the laptop project that oh well one part of this tool chain looks useful to us and the other parts don't then they can still get all the benefits of that one part of the tool chain uh, and they can still kind of be part of that ecosystem and I feel like that you know is makes things better for everyone really when you have kind of segmentable tools that combine together rather than having like one big monolithic system that you can't really swap bits in and out of. This episode is brought to you by Raygun. Raygun recently launched their application performance monitoring service, APM as it's called. It was built with the developer and DevOps in mind, and they are leading with first-class support for .NET apps and also available as an Azure app service. They have plans to support .NET Core followed by Java and Ruby in the very near future. And they've done a ton of competitive research between the current APM providers out there. And where they excel is the level of detail they're surfacing. New Relic and App Dynamics, for example, are more business oriented, where Raygun has been built with developers and DevOps in mind. The level of detail they're providing in traces allows you to actively solve problems and dramatically boost your team's efficiency when diagnosing problems. Deep dive into root cause with automatic linkbacks to source for an unbeatable issue resolution workflow. This is awesome. Check it out. Learn more and get started at raygun.com APM. we mentioned the support for windows and linux and i i said there's an asterisk by the windows support mostly because you had a few people out there saying this isn't real windows support um because it's windows subsystem for linux can you tell us what that means you know are there things missing is it you know do you do you consider it official windows support or or what's the your perspective on on that so that was that kind of came from the the linux booth folks basically who did a bit of work to kind of get that stuff working but it mostly kind of worked out of the box so if you're unfamiliar windows 10 ships with a thing that's called windows subsystem for linux i don't believe it's installed by default you can enable it it's kind of a developer tool thing and basically it gives you a full ubuntu environment uh, on your windows machine and the really cool thing about it is it's not like you know transparently running a vm in the background but it's actually running native linux binaries through 
uh, I can't remember exactly how it works under the hood, but it's some, some sort of like kernel Cisco uh, mapping. Um, I guess in, in a vague way, it seems to be a little bit like wine, if any of you are familiar with that. Um, but mm-hmm. in, re- in reverse and at the kernel level, I believe. And it's easier for Microsoft to do that, obviously, because they can see what the Linux Cisco interface is because it's all open source. And they've been involved with uh, Linux development in the last few years and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, so it, it's basically a way of running native Windows Linux stuff on your Windows machine. Um, so as a result, you can run Linux Brew under that. Um, and then when Linux Brew joined Homebrew, then you can run Homebrew under that as well. So it's one of our kind of officially supported platforms, more or less because it's just a relatively simple um, way of being able to kind of run Homebrew on a Windows system. Uh, and in terms mm-hmm. of yeah, I would agree. It's not. I used to do kind of proper some native Windows development in the past, and it's certainly not that. It's not a native Windows package manager. For that, you have kind of things like NuGet and Chocolatey and things like that. Um, but if you kind of want to be able to kind of dabble in things that are in the Homebrew ecosystem uh, and try them out on a Windows machine uh, without having to spin up a Linux VM or a Mac VM or whatever, then it's a way of doing that. So does it have a completely separate formula i assume the formula have to work differently yeah so the formula are separate between linux and uh, mac for homebrew anyway so there's a um, repository homebrew homebrew core which is all the homebrew uh is all the homebrew packages and then there's a repository homebrew linux brew core now as of i think two days ago it used to be linux brew homebrew core so like flip some stuff around um, yeah, so that basically has all the Linux packages separately, and the reasoning for that is that it's on the formula level, which is the our name for the package description files. It's a lot harder to do that stuff I talked about earlier with kind of making things nice and clean and having separation. You end up with having a lot of if Mac, if Linux, um, and uh-huh. basically like it's as a result those have kind of evolved a little bit more separately. So on Windows, it ends up uses using the Linux. Um, under the Windows, Windows subsystem for Linux, it ends up using the Linux uh, versions of the formula for a package description. Gotcha. So there aren't... There's effectively two pieces of software. There's not separate Windows ones. There's yeah. Homebrew and Linux Brew, but they're all under one parent yeah. at this point. But yes. there aren't three. It's not as if you separately went out and implemented Windows. It just is coming along, quote-unquote, for free because of the Windows subsystem for Linux. Exactly. And I think there were a few tweaks that kind of make it run a little bit better. But yeah, it more or less came for free. So have you seen a lot of uh, pickup from the Linux and the, the Windows side? Are there, are there, are there issues and you know, bug reports coming in that are new to Homebrew 2? Or was it already happening with Linux Brew and so just kind of a, a merging of these two projects? Yeah, so I guess I notice a few more Linux issues than I used to because it used to be separate repositories and now for the package uh-huh. manager part at least it's all the same repository now. Um but yeah, I mean they kind of their analytics on the Linux side of things, they've seen like a big uptick uh since Homebrew and Linux Brew kind of joined together in that way. So that's kind of been cool. And it's it's been it's been interesting in general just seeing and people kind of learning like why would you use Linux Brew and stuff like that? Which is, in some ways, that's a question where that's the one you, you tend to get the most with the, the Linux support is, well, why do you do this? You know, why would you not just use AppGet? Um, which is a valid question, because I still, despite being the Homebrew project leader, consider uh, AppGet to be a superior package manager in very many ways. Um, and it, basically, the reasoning is, the original motivation of the, a lot of the people who work on Linux Brew, actually, is because they 
if you have access to the package manager on a Linux system, then great. And a lot of people are thinking kind of from the developer perspective of, you know, I'm a dev, I have my own system, I set it on myself, I'm running Linux on my system, you know, like I don't have a workplace who is, you know, not letting me install things through the package manager. But some people do have that. And a noticeable group is, you know, people who are running on big Linux supercomputing clusters, they have access to run stuff on that system, but they often do not have access to root on that system or the package manager on that system. So the way they kind of generally have to build their own software is they just build stuff in their home directory by themselves um, without really any support. And Linux Brew has allowed some of those folks to be able to have an actual package manager that they can use and they can just install stuff in their home directory. Or if they want to use Linux Brew's binary packages, then they can... I've been informed this is an e- a lot easier ask. They can say, hey, can you set up a new user on that system? It doesn't need to be root. Uh, a new user called Linux Brew, and then all the binary packages are kind of built um, so that they can be used on their home Linux Brew. Um, and then the system administrator can kind of set that up, and they can go and then benefit from some of the binary packages as well. Mm. What about the brew file with the bundle? Is that something that's only on the Mac side? I, I assume there's definitely like the cask stuff and the the other stuff wouldn't be available on the Linux side. But would you at least be able to have a project with a brew file that's you know lowest common denominator so that somebody on Linux and somebody on Mac could both use the same brew file and get their setups going? Yeah, I mean, I think you could, as you say, it would have to be lowest common denominator because there's some stuff that doesn't work uh, on on the Linux side. It would effectively be just setting up homebrew third party repositories, taps, and installing homebrew packages formula but yeah it's not officially supported by us in homebrew bundle but i would imagine it probably works i guess thinking of the way the code behaves okay so what about the team so this linux brew seemed like it was its own deal and now it's part of homebrew so is there a merging of teams and communities or are these people that were already involved with the homebrew community in the first place yeah so i mean there's uh, i guess two linux brew maintainers came across specifically to homebrew uh, as kind of part of the well, I guess somewhat pre the merge. There's two people who are like our main maintainers, uh, Mishka Popov and Sean Jackman. But then we, we have a few other kind of maintainers who are kind of are, are in and out of Linux land and stuff as well. Um, so yeah, so it's been good actually. I, I feel like it's injected a lot of energy into the project because Linux Brew probably has a disproportionate number of, I guess like the Linux ecosystem in general, I would say, a disproportionate number of uh contributors and in our case maintainers as well for the size of the ecosystems um so yeah so it's been great having more people get involved with the project and more people who have been running their own independent open source project in linux Brew's case for quite a few years in the homebrew wider ecosystem um so they kind of come into homebrew with the understanding of what it's like to run a project and triage issues and you know interact with other maintainers and stuff like that so yeah no they've been invaluable well, going a little further, there's been some changes to governance. There's been a first ever in-person meetup paid by Patreon donations. Take us down the road of like this very first in-person meetup and what's what's kind of come down the pipe in terms of governance and your your roles even changed a bit, right? Yeah, yeah, no, it has. So we've been kind of talking in Homebrew for a little while about how best to kind of govern the project. So I guess in the, a, a brief kind of history it was originally kind of Max Howell, the original kind of creator, and he got some other maintainers on board, such as myself. And then he dropped away from the project. And then there was kind of a goal to sort of just run it all, like, I guess, as a complete flat hierarchy for a while. But as is the case with companies as well, like generally you kind of need a little bit more structure than that, we found. So I sort of um, somewhat unilaterally declared myself 
lead maintainer after checking with other people that would be fine uh, a few years ago and then kind of we've you know there's been a few and if you kind of troll through the homebrew issue trackers you can kind of see some of it there's been a little bit of tension with that on occasion because you know people don't necessarily agree with you know understandably that you have someone who's in a position of authority with no clear way of removing them if they stop working on the project in future or start to abuse their authority or whatever so we kind of talked for a while about you know in future trying to have some better sort of governance model and maybe looking at some of the the older more senior open source projects than us and seeing how they do some of this stuff um and then i guess as a result of that again as you mentioned we've kind of had a reasonable amount of money coming in through patreon now and we're part of software for conservancy and i've had some donations through there so we kind of thought well like something which we can do with that money uh, is that would be kind of valuable is have a bunch of homebrew maintainers kind of come together and meet up so we had uh, 14 of us kind of all came to brussels around the time of fosdem because it's a, a kind of big open source conference uh, that is yeah. free to attend as well uh, so we got there and then we had the day after Fosdem was over we basically just rented a meeting room in a hotel and all kind of got together and you know had lunch and dinner and had out a basically kind of what you guys called it when the, the not to be too grandiose when the founding fathers all, all met together to the convening kind of plot yeah yeah so yeah so we ended up not necessarily knowing what we were going to talk about uh before but it ended up being mostly about kind of governance of the project um and yeah and it was super valuable i think and um, we we kind of managed to etch out kind of in that meeting the sort of the outlinings of a structure for the project um shout out to John Chang specifically, who had kind of written up a lot of stuff and kind of come into the meeting with, you know, a really, really decent draft of what to do. And then we kind of iterated on that a little bit during the day and then iterated on it more kind of in private. Uh, and then we opened a pull request on Homebrew uh, Brew on our kind of main repository to kind of solicit contributions on that as well. And then, yeah, after a week of that being open, we kind of merged that through. So what that actually means is that we now have um, a bit more structure than we had before. We have a the lead maintainer role has gone away and been replaced with a project leader, uh, which maybe sounds a little bit like um, two things that are exactly the same, but the difference is um, the project leader role, I was elected into that position um, and stood for election, and I will be, um, if I want to, I will stand again uh, next year, and then there will be another election, and anyone else who stands will hmm. um, have a platform if they wanted to, and then we can see effectively who gets elected by basically by the members to to be in that position. So we have a governance document that explains kind of how this all works now. We have a project leadership committee and a technical steering committee, um, of which I'm currently on all three. But again, the nice thing is in, in future, uh, that's changing, so I cannot be on all three. Um, so not me specifically, but uh, you basically cannot have a role that is on all three places. And we're also having this idea of um, members to homebrew as well, where if you have someone who isn't a maintainer, maybe isn't involved as much with the code side of homebrew, or has been involved with homebrew for quite a few years, then they can get kind of nominated and join as a member, and then they can kind of vote on some of these kind of elections in the future and get involved with the project on the administrative side without necessarily needing to or wanting to get involved with it on the technical side. Have you laid any of this out in documentation by any means? I know I, I've seen the... Yep latest to a document so there is governance yeah so if you check out the docs.brew.sh site then right at the bottom of that page there's a homebrew governance document which kind of lays all this out it's kind of vaguely legalese language it's fairly readable but 
it's not you know it's not great kind of super fun reading but it does explain kind of how this stuff all works and how people are elected and and not and how often these meetings happen and stuff like that so that's kind of worth a read if you're if you're interested in this stuff um and it's nice as well because it's as well as being like bringing some elections into things and policy and stuff which is again nice for me kind of to be you know it, it i think it's it's nice for me and it's nice for the community to have me actually be kind of elected to the role kind of and have the majority of people agree that you know obviously they think that i'm doing a good job and that they kind of support me doing that for the next year but it's also kind of as i said with putting limitations on what pe- on what people can do it, it's is going to be end up reducing our bus factor as well um sorry or increasing our bus factor i can never remember which way around that is um but basically <laughs> it's going to make it much easier for us in future to have things not be too centralized on an individual because we have these committees we have a leadership position and it's clearly defined what the roles of each of them are and the responsibilities are and that you can't basically be responsible for everything and i feel that that's going to be a really positive thing in future and it's also as we mentioned earlier i think this happening at the same time as the kind of linux merge it's brought in a bunch more people who have kind of been enthusiastic and have been helped and got involved with that process so we have people on the technical committee and the project leadership committee who have come from that linux brew merger um so that's yeah. kind of been a, a nice positive thing from that as well maybe an interesting takeaway here too is i guess now having an annual general meeting which puts a little bit more pressure on the need for, I guess, finances, which is good for Patreon that you've got that, but then you also mentioned Software Freedom Conservancy. Um, I'm just kind of curious what your thoughts are on funding this project and how you got how you all look at, you know, you know attaining funding and maintaining that and the the needs for for funds to do things like this. Yeah, that's a good question, and I think this has been, you know, our funding has got to the level that we've been able to afford to pay for lights for people. Uh, to kind of come to stuff like this so you know we have people coming from canada people coming from india uh to this meeting and that that's been kind of really really great but then obviously um the amount of funds we get uh, limits or permits what we're able to do with mm-hmm. the project so it would be great to have kind of a future where we could hire potentially people to work on aspects of homebrew maybe the infrastructure stuff we've mentioned before full or part-time but uh, at the moment we still very much have you know, an amount of money that pays for flights once a year, but we don't have an amount of money that pays anywhere near kind of a, a reasonable salary for, for someone with money left over as well. So, yeah, so kind of increasing our funding is kind of a goal for, for future. And hopefully as well, the, the more we're able to be transparent about what we've spent the money on um, and how that's kind of all broken down, the more we'll be able to um, solicit more funds and know that people know that it's not just going to a black hole it's going to these specific things uh, and there's a there's going to be a blog post incoming at some point in the future where we'll write up um what we did at this meeting who met who was there what we talked about we've got all the minutes and stuff like that and i also want to detail in that blog post like how much we spent and why we felt that that was a good use of money as well because we don't we don't have the exact breakdown of everything now so we yeah kind of still waiting and kind of working with software from conservancy to kind of get that information but again that's the nice thing about open source is you can afford to be more transparent about this stuff than you you would be as a business and also then it might be in future that there's opportunities where uh, i i've spoken to people at large tech companies before who've said you know if you, if you just want us to give you x amount of money 
particularly in something like Patreon, that's very hard for us to do. Whereas if you want us to kind of pay for flights for 10 people, that's actually really easy for us to do. Mm-hmm. So this uh. stuff may also open doors in the future for us being able to ask for more specific financial commitments or uh, donations from companies in a way that makes it easier for them to give money to us rather than just you know yeah. something like, um, you know, I know if you're, as I say, if you're a massive tech company getting a, a line item approved from finance or whatever to sign up to Patreon with a corporate credit card and give a certain amount every month is, you know, it's, it's not easy. That's, that's a, a system that is built around the assumption that most of the donations will come from individuals from the goodness of their own heart. Um, and while that is great, and I'm, I'm all for that, I think we need to, with open source sustainability stuff, we need to try and figure out ways of be, making it easy for the big tech companies to give to you. Because, you know, they get, they get villainized uh, to a certain extent, and some of that is legitimate, I think. But then some of it is just like, you know, you're not making it easy for them to give you money. And you, you need to figure out, as I guess the, the charitable sector has kind of worked out for quite a while, that, you know, it's as much about meeting them where they're at and making it as easy as physically possible for them to give you what you want, rather than saying, you know, this is how I accept money, mm-hmm. and you need to kind of yeah. come and meet me where I am. How's that play out then for an entity? Does Homebrew have a legal entity? You know, is this Patreon connected to a person? It, what's the state of things there? Yeah, good question. Yeah, so that's what the Software Freedom Conservancy basically is. So they are a umbrella organization that provides a 501c3 in the US, um, which to those of us who aren't in the US, that basically is a US charitable organization. That means organizations can donate to them tax-free. They also provide legal services were homebrew to get sued as an organization, say, um, and they provide a certain amount of kind of just being a legal entity that can own things and have bank accounts and such like. So that's basically our Patreon money um, and all our previous kind of money from our Kickstarter and stuff that has gone to Homebrew uh, Freedom Conservancy, who goes and kind of manages all our funds on our behalf. Um, and in some ways, they work like a little company for us, which is great. So for example, with the way we have all the kind of homebrew money in a bank account and we have a sum of how much we have and people have, you know, able to donate to the Sovereign Freedom Conservancy and that goes straight to us if they kind of say that that's for homebrew. Um, but at the same time, when we book flights, we kind of, you know, we don't just book all the flights on homebrew's credit card. We can go and they have kind of an expense policy and you go and reimburse that way. And it's, it's kind of, it sounds like it would be nicer to put the things on a credit card, but as the person who would probably mm-hmm. be having to book that, I'm glad that, there is more kind of responsible oversight with this stuff. And the nice thing with this, the Freedom Conservancy is that they don't really specify anything about the technical running of your project beyond the fact that you need to have some sort of leadership committee. So they, they basically let you run the project how you like, and then they focus more on the kind of legal and financial side, which is great for us and for me, because that's the side of things that we're you still own the copyright and stuff like that then? Um, yeah. So we don't, yeah, we don't do copyright assignment or anything like that in Homebrew. Um, because, yeah, I, I don't know uh, why we don't or why we do, but that, that ship kind of sailed a long time ago. <laughs> okay. Well, switching gears slightly, I, I'm recalling the last time you were here a couple of years back, we were talking about you recently added analytic tracking to Homebrew with opt-out, and it was a bit of a controversy. So we discussed that last time, and I remember on that call us saying it would be cool if you opened up the data for the community to see since it's, you know, our data, I guess, in the first place. Um, and since then, you, you've done that, which is awesome. Um, we'll link up some of the analytics in the show notes. I thought it would be fun here. Have either of you looked at the 
uh, install stats recently in terms of formula installed, Adam or Mike? Yes. I, I look at them pretty recently, yeah. Oh, you're killing me, y'all. Like, Adam, you just looked at it? Uh, before the call, I guess prep, yeah, it's part of this. All right. It ruins my game. I was going to have us guess. Well, I, I can still guess. Come on, let's play the game. Okay, let's play the game. So, uh, 90-day install events, okay? So, we'll take turns, Mike and then Adam. Mike might have these memorized. Maybe this is, like, on a dashboard above your bed or something at home, but hopefully not. Uh, top installed formula in the, over the last 90 days. Try to hit in the top 20. But try to hit number one. What do you think? What's the most installed packages? I'm, I'm going to be pedantic because I know how the analytics work to start with. So are we going for install events or install on request events? Install events. What's the difference? So the difference between that. Should I go the other way? No, no. I guess it's, it, it's interesting the difference because if people are looking at these, it might help to explain. Okay. Uh, so the install events is if I install a package and it pulls in a dependency, then uh-huh. the package and the dependency are both install events. Whereas only okay. the package I specifically request is an install and request event. Oh, okay. So, let's do them both. We got yeah. time. So let's start with the overall install formula install, overall install events. So this means either you asked for it or it's a dependency, which means, you know, it's infrastructure. So that will change the results for sure. But what do you think uh, some of the top packages here or formula? You get to guess one and then Adam gets to guess one. We'll do it family feud style. <laughs> okay. Well, I'll guess the easiest one first, which is survey says open SSL. Open SSL. So you, yeah, you got number one. So sorry, Adam, yep. but you already lost. Oh, geez. Not fair. He runs this project. Okay. Uh, but, you know, you can still hit up there number high. So what do you think, Adam? I'm going to base mine based on our most popular page on changelog.com. I think you know what that is. So uh, the changelog installing node. So I would, I would assume <laughs> that node's probably in the top somewhere. Oh, that's right. Yes. Not, node is number five. So very good. Uh, let's go one more time each and we'll switch, then we'll switch to the other events. So. Mike, give us another one. Try to hit in the top five. Try to hit number two. Python. Python, close. That's number three. Number two still on the board. So we have OpenSSL first, Python third, Node fifth. So Adam, you could squeeze in there at number two if you can think of this. I'm going with Git. Git. Oh, I got to scroll way down to 15. The correct answer was, as you should know, SQLite, number two. With 1.5, 1.35 million install events in the last 90 days. Now let's go to formula install on request events. And we might have very similar responses. <laughs> in fact, I won't make you guys guess. I will tell you that it's the same packages, but they've kind of been moved around. So Node is number one. Python, number two. Sneaking up there, number three, wget, followed by git. And then fifth is yarn. So we see these are user-facing tools. Open SSLs a little further, yeah. Yeah, trickles down to nine because most people are using that as a dependency, but um, not most, but often. All right, fun game. Very cool. Check those out. Um, I didn't know this was out here until recently. Has this been out and available for a long time, Mike? Uh, it's been, yeah, it's been available for, I don't know, maybe, in fact, I could, I know how long it's been because I remember building it when my <laughs> when my wife was heavily pregnant and we were on our last vacation okay. before my son was born and I felt you know I have to do this now because this is my last chance ever um, yeah so that, that was about <laughs> so you know exactly how old it is then yeah exactly uh, yeah no so about about a year um, in any okay. form and probably about you know half a year in its about a year in its current form probably but yeah no so it's, it's great actually I've been, this is cool. it's been nice to kind of get that done because. As you said, you know, and that's what I hope for is make this stuff um, open. And we sort of live by that as well in that. So because this is pulling data from Google Analytics, you need an analytics, a Google Analytics API key to access that data. 
uh, and me and the other maintainers don't even have an API key on our machines anymore. So we, when we're consuming analytics data, we're consuming entirely the same public data that everyone else does. Um, and there's actually APIs on that site as well that you can pull this data programmatically, which has been handy for people because both the analytics data, I don't know if the APIs are used so much for that, but for the formula data, for example, you can query information about a formula without having access to a Mac system, say. And it's all, mm. and the, the worst slash best part of this all is it's actually all on GitHub pages. Um, so like you can hammer it as much as you like and you're not going to cost us any money. Um, and if you want to nice. see pain in the world of code, if you look at what it looks like to build a, a JSON API on top of GitHub pages, then you will know great sadness. <laughs> <laughs> I might go read that later because I, I like to know great sadness every once in a while, especially when I don't have to write the great sadness. I just <laughs> enjoy the results. Yeah. <laughs> we know Homebrew 2 is fresh and it's new, but... Uh, we have to ask you what's in the future. Is there anything, anything that's not out so far, anything that's uh, fun planned that's coming up that you can tease or mention? Yeah, it's funny. So that there's no really big things that I can think of. Like Homebrew 2 for me was a funny experience because that was kind of the end of my, my list of like things that I thought were really important that I wanted to kind of get built before. Uh, so from my perspective, there's not the stuff I would like to see. But again, this is kind of a bit more fun because it's, dependent on the kind of community stepping up. It's just been talks for a few years about uh, being able to show licensing information for homebrew packages. So you can query what license each individual package is. You could maybe say, I deliberately don't want to install. I know this, some commercial uh, organizations would find it useful to say, I just don't want to allow, say, AGPLv3 stuff to be installed at all. Um, so yeah, we have someone who's sort of started finally a community effort to kind of build up a groupings of all that kind of licensing information. Or packages, and then when that reaches um, kind of complete enough state, then we're going to go and we'll merge that back into Homebrew itself. And this was the process that we kind of took for descriptions, adding them to packages back when we did that, where we said, okay, if someone can go and effectively build up all the metadata, when that's done, we'll then merge it back into the project. Um, and yeah, so we've got a guy who we tweeted about this the other day, um, and you can go and see there's an open help wanted issue in the Homebrew Brew repository as well who's building this stuff up. So that would be a cool thing both to watch and also to get involved with. I'll make sure we get that link for the show notes then so the listeners can check that out. Uh, Mike, you know what? It's it's always good catching up with you. And, and uh, I think it's funny too how you can earmark when things happened with Homebrew based on life events. I think that's, that's a true sign of, <laughs> you know, the life of a maintainer, you know? And so as someone yeah. who uses the code that you've worked so hard to, to slave over, all these years and put this much effort into and you know all this stuff i'm just so appreciative of that because you make my life so much easier as a mac user and getting my system up and running as as we talked about in the show so i appreciate that and i'm, I'm glad that uh, e even though you're on vacation you can still uh, put out a good feature which is uh, appreciated well thank you very much and the nice thing about it for me is that you know believe it or not it's still fun for me to work on homebrew mm -hmm. uh, and that's that's the thing is that it's still something in my free time that you know maybe not as much as i used to both because of maybe homebrew growing up a little bit but also because of my life getting busier but you know there's definitely times where i'm at a weekend and you know maybe my wife's out with my kid for a little while and i've got free time to myself and i'm like what do i feel like doing the most right now well i feel like you know working on homebrew and that's the, the nice thing that i'm able to do that and it's fun for me and get to kind of give back and have other people have something useful at the end of it as well 
Well, Mike, we thank you very much for Homebrew and the rest of the team that makes it happen. And also for your time. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, guys. Great job. All right. Thank you for tuning into this episode of the Changelog. Hey, guess what? We have discussions on every single episode now. So head to changelog.com to discuss this episode. And if you want to help us grow this show, reach more listeners and influence more developers, do us a favor and give us a rating or review in iTunes or Apple Podcasts. If you use Overcast, give us a star. If you tweet, tweet a link. If you make lists of your favorite podcasts, include us in it. And of course, thank you to our sponsors, DigitalOcean, Get Prime, and Raygun. Also, thanks to Fastly, our bandwidth partner, Rollbar, our monitoring service, and Linode, our cloud server of choice. This episode is hosted by myself, Adam Stukowiak, and Jared Santo. And our music is done by Breakmaster Cylinder. If you want to hear more episodes like this, subscribe to our master feed at changelog.com slash master or go into your podcast app and search for Changelog Master. You'll find it. Thank you for tuning in this week. We'll see you again soon. Practical AI is a show hosted by Daniel Whitenack and Chris Benson about making artificial intelligence practical, productive, and accessible to everyone. You'll hear from AI influencers and practitioners, and they'll keep you up to date with the latest news and resources so you can cut through all the hype. As you were at the uh, Thanksgiving table with your your friends and family, were you talking about the fear of AI? Well, I, I wasn't at the Thanksgiving table because my wife has forbidden me from doing so. Um, <laughs> oh, I, it's it's off limits for, for me, lest I drive her insane because I never stop. New episodes premiere every Monday. Find the show at changelaw.com slash practically I or wherever you listen to podcasts. The only other, other thing I would want to pull into the show, or not even the show, maybe just an after show. I almost thought about this during, but I forgot until just like right there at the end was what keeps you motivated? You know, like, yeah, there's so much work that goes into this. Like, you know, you're on paternity leave having to write up this incident report. I mean, that's sort of like one variation of motivation because you kind of have to at that point. You've got some responsibility, but like no one's making you make homebrew better. And it's not like you're getting paid to do it. You know what I mean? Yeah, I guess that's... He enjoys I, it. I mean, I think the thing for me is that it's actually kind of the opposite from what you said, bizarrely, where I wrote a blog post about this a little while ago. And it's, unfortunately, it's got a slightly flame-baity title because my my brief stint in kind of the marketing organization at my company pointed me out pointed out to me that, you know, flame-bait is a good way of getting your links shared more. Uh, and it was called uh, Open Source Maintainers Owe You Nothing. Uh, and basically that was... Like, that's what keeps me motivated, really, is the fact that, like, I don't act, I know, and I have strongly internalized the fact that I don't owe anyone anything, you know, uh, and the licenses that open source software is under state that quite clearly, that um, if I release buggy code, which destroys your computer, blows up your house, whatever, like, that's, you've disclaimed all warranties on that. And you've basically said that that's not in any way my fault or my obligation to, to deal with that in the license that you agree to when you use any open source software. Um, so I think that kind of helps me a lot, actually, because you know most of the time people are decent, but there, there have been times in Homebrew's history where I've closed a legitimate bug because the person who has reported it is unable to like maintain a conversation in a way that isn't extremely rude and extremely toxic. And I can't do that at work. I mean, thankfully, I don't have a deal with customers type role at my work anyway. Um, but you know, if you're in a workplace and you're being paid by someone, you can't just decide 
well, no, actually, I'm going to, you know, stop talking to this paying customer anymore unless you're kind of the one running the business, which I am not. Um, whereas in open source, I can decide to do that. I can decide at any point, right, well, I just, you know, opt out of this conversation. I'm, I'm done here. I'm moving on. I'm going to do something else. Um, and I think particularly nowadays, it's kind of helpful to be, um, I think that's really been brought home with like having a family and kind of being aware of like my mood and things like that. And my wife's really good at kind of pointing out if I'm particularly kind of happy or sad or whatever. And I, I try and sort of like double down on that. But I think it's been helpful with that because I have homebrew issues, which kind of need to be fixed. You know, they're not urgent priority, but they're relatively high priority that have sat unfixed for three or four months because I don't want to fix them. And, mm. you know, if, some, if, if someone else thinks that they're a big enough problem, then they'll fix them and I'll happily help them figure out how to fix them. But I don't have to. Um, and they don't affect me, so I'm not going to. Um, and again, that's for me in some in some ways the interesting thing about introducing more money into open source is again, if homebrew was my full time gig and I was being paid full time to do that, then all of a sudden that would change, and I would feel a, a sense of obligation that I would have to work on those things and I would have to fix these things. Um, particularly if the people who were sp- individuals or companies who were paying me were pointing out that these were the problems that they were experiencing. Whereas the nice thing is I can say, well, actually that one doesn't look very fun, so I'm not going to bother. 